0: Well, in our time we have remaining, I would like to invite you to turn to Second Thessalonians. you find that on page 989 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be in chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. And thinking about how to consider persecution. Of course, we today have, have considered persecution. We, we've, we've thought about the persecuted church. I want to take a moment in the time we have left to think about what God has to say about the persecuted church. We find the persecution of God's people began when there began to be God's people and those who were not. I think of Cain and Abel. We see it in the enslavement of the people of God in Egypt and on all the way through the book of Revelation. We see it here with our Thessalonian brothers and sisters in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Hear now the Word of God. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith, with His mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Father, we thank you for your Word. May you help us to consider it rightly today and apply it to our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. To add my voice to those who have already shared, on September 17th, just 52 days ago in Laos, Tyeng Ken Thong died from complications After his medical needs had been ignored during his nine-month imprisonment for his faith, he and four other Christian leaders were arrested on the charge of medical malpractice after praying for a terminally ill Christian woman who died shortly later. Village authorities had pressured her family to recant their Christian faith and brought in Buddhist monks to conduct her funeral service despite her family's protests. On October 7th, last month in Syria, ISIS released a video showing the execution of three Christians as they knelt in the desert sand. Prior to their execution, each man stated his name and identified himself as a Nasrani, a derogatory Muslim term for Christians. They were among the over 250 Assyrian believers who have been abducted by ISIS in February, many of whom are currently kept alive for ransom. On October 13th in Indonesia, nine church buildings were demolished by the government as the Islamists had complained there were too many churches in their province and began acting violently against Christians while pressuring the government to close churches down. An estimated 8,000 Christians have fled their home for fear of violence from their Muslim neighbors. On October 21st, in Egypt, at 4 a.m., Christian Amir Bushra awoke to find his five-year-old son had been kidnapped from his bedroom and that his abductors were demanding a ransom equivalent of 25000 U.S. dollars. The police did nothing to locate the boy or his kidnappers, and Bushra's son was only returned after his family pooled their resources to pay the ransom. Many Egyptian Christians have seen family members kidnapped for ransom, and some make the payment only to find that their loved ones have been sold again or even killed. Ten days ago, on October 26th, in Kenya, a Christian mother of eight was surprised at her home by Muslims demanding to see her husband, a recent convert from Islam, whose brother was murdered a month earlier for his Christian faith. When she explained that her husband was not home, they dragged her from her house and beat her severely in front of her children. By the time her husband returned and took her to the hospital, she had died. This week, on November 4th in Kyrgyzstan, as the only Christians in a Muslim village, a Christian couple fled their home due to the escalating pressure to recant their faith in Christ and the growing threat of violence. Their boldness to share the gospel and to show the Jesus film to other families led to them throwing stones at their home and yelling that they had defamed Islam. The Christian commentator John Stott in surveying the persecution of Christians throughout this world writes, we see malice, cruelty, power, and the arrogance of evil men who persecute. We also see suffering of the people of God who are oppressed, ridiculed, boycotted, harassed, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. In other words, what we see is injustice. The wicked wicked flourishing and the righteous suffering, and we are tempted to inveigh against God and against the miscarriage of justice. Why doesn't God do something? End quote. Perhaps that question is in your heart today. Why doesn't God do something? Maybe that's the question of our suffering brothers and sisters around this world. Perhaps that was the question the Thessalonians asked some 2,000 years ago, who, according to verse 4, were enduring persecutions and afflictions. In fact, they were suffering so much that, according to 1 Thessalonians, Paul was afraid that he had labored in vain. That they, in face of the affliction in which they are enduring for the sake of Christ, they had walked away from Him. Why doesn't God do something? So I think the question Paul is writing this letter to answer. His answer is, God is doing something, and God will do something. And If you wonder, as we think about our brothers and sisters around this world, and we, and we wonder, you know, how, how do you endure such things and still have hope and love and faith? How do you stand firm? This is why Paul has given us this letter. This is why God has placed it in Scripture so that we might note briefly three reasons the persecuted can trust God in the midst of their affliction. First of all, can, Christians can endure persecution because God rules. God rules. God rules. Briefly, I want you to note verse 5 which says this is evidence. This being referring to verse 4, the persecutions and, and afflictions that are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So Paul says the afflictions and persecutions are part of God's design. These have come upon you so that you might be considered worthy for the kingdom of God. Now when Paul writes worthy, he's not explaining that they're going to earn the kingdom of God through their sufferings. He's not arguing that they will um, uh, somehow uh, accomplish the kingdom of God through their afflictions. But rather he's explaining that the, the persecution that come upon them is going to make them fit for the kingdom of God. The, the afflictions, in other words, are not punishment by God. They are, they are for their purification. It's to make them holy. It's the refiner's fire, as Peter would tell us. That these persecutions are designed to actually do something in the Christian's life. It's designed to create love in their hearts and to to create humility in them and dependence upon God. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, God whispers to us in pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts at us in our pain. God does this in the midst of suffering, it's not pointless. Do not think the suffering of the Christian church is gratuitous. That God's out there thinking, oh man, I wish this wasn't happening. God is working through the schemes of evil men as He has from the very beginning to accomplish good for His people. And so Christians can endure persecution because God rules. Secondly, Christians can endure persecution because God judges. God judges. Verse 6 tells us, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You sense, I think, in your heart the terrible injustice that occurs when when people afflict and harm those who love Jesus simply because they love Jesus. Paul understands that and therefore he writes that justice will be met. Please understand that God is angry when his people suffer. There's no doubt that Scripture teaches us that. And one day, He will put everything right. All those who torment and torture and taunt will face judgment. All those who apparently win and are flourishing and ruling will be judged. He tells us when in verse 7, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven... I like how he explains that Christ is returning, but he doesn't use the typical language of the return of Christ. He uses the language of the revelation of Christ. you see that when Jesus is revealed? Because those who persecute Christians are are, are totally ignorant of the fact that Christ reigns upon His throne even this very moment. And one day, that will be apparent to everyone. Christ will return, and when he is returned, he will be revealed, almost like you take a veil off a statue. So Christ's sovereign majesty and his ultimate authority will be displayed before the entire world. He will be revealed, according to verse 7, with his mighty angels, literally his angels of power. And in verse 8, in flaming fire. One commentator puts it this way. The picture here is one of an irresistible army. The Lord of the universe returning from a long journey to settle accounts with the tenants of his earth. There will be no escape, no recourse, no place to hide, and above all, no possibility to withstand. Paul explains it in the language of speaking about inflicting vengeance. They will suffer punishment. Even verse 9, he elaborates, saying, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Those who persecute the church. Now he offers mercy. Today, mercy is offered to anyone who would come to Christ. His enemies right now, those who persecute the Christian church, are offered mercy uh, from God because Christ has taken the vengeance of God upon Himself through the cross. And by the way, even as we've seen in the video today and we understand through history, many people who once persecute Christ and Christians will bow their knee and receive the mercy of God through Jesus. In fact, the author of this letter is one such man. He killed Christians. And then he found the mercy of Christ. You see, this Jesus offers mercy. But understand that the Jesus who offers mercy now and who, the Jesus who wept over the unbelief of Jerusalem, the Jesus who, who offered his life to suffer for sinners will come a second time. And he will inflict vengeance on those who spurn his mercy. According to verse 8, he will judge those who refuse to receive the gospel. And so Paul writes this to the suffering church. I think it's incredibly important for them to understand that. You understand the power that that gives you, knowing Christ will come and settle all accounts. What that means is you don't have to settle all accounts. You don't have to settle any account. God will take care of it. Understanding the judgment of God empowers the persecuted, and I believe, Christian, empowers you even to be patient and to be forgiving and to love your enemies. You don't have to seek ultimate justice you don't have to be the judge. Right? God will take that role. But so often we, we want to take it. Some, so often we forget that Christ will right every wrong and, and we take the, the role of judge. We put on the judge's robes, right? And, and I, th- I think you're probably familiar with this. You ever, when someone does wrong to you, do you ever imagine creating in your mind little scenarios of things you would like to happen to them? Right? You think about and you even root for these things, right? Maybe even try to help them along. You're putting on the judge's robes, aren't you? You want to be judged. And I'll tell you, you'll always do a poor job in judging. In fact, if you want to judge others, you will have to judge yourself. And if you try to take this role, the weight will just crush you. Some, you know people, maybe some people are even here who are just crushed under that weight because they cannot get over what has been done to them in the past. And it is crushing them. Because they don't understand God is coming and He will right every wrong either through Christ on the cross or through His second coming. See, He's coming. And because of God's judgment, because of the fact that Christ will right every wrong, you and our suffering brothers and sisters in Christ and the Thessalonians can just do what's right. And they can remember mercy. And they can let God deliver ultimate justice. You see, they can endure persecution because God judges. But lastly, consider that Christians can endure persecution because God rewards. God rewards. Note verse seven. The Christ is coming to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Right? He wants the persecuted to know that Christ will come and He will bring relief, the affliction will end, those who suffer will be given rest, the, the, the labor will be over, the vacation will begin. God is coming to give relief. He's coming to to give recompense for all who sacrifice for the sake of Christ. He takes into account all the suffering that we endure. You know, Jesus once said, even if you give a cup of cold water to the least of my disciples, know this, you will not lose your reward. Even the smallest act in the name of Jesus that costs you nothing is taken into account by God Himself and He will repay it. He will reward it. And what that means is that everything in your life life matters everything because God is taking it all into account if, if there is no reward if there is no coming in judgment if there is no judge then their suffering their sacrifice the, the the hardship means nothing in fact, if it, 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 as the naturalist will tell us, if it all, all we're headed to one day is the sun's going to burn out and we're all going to die and everything just ends, what that means that is that nothing matters. As Solomon would say, it's all vanity. Everything is vanity. But if God does see and God notice and God does hold to account and God does judge and God does reward, then this life has significance he will reward the suffering in fact he not only rewards them with his rest notice he rewards them with his presence look in verse 10 when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed they will marvel at jesus on that day christian you will marvel at christ on that day can you can you imagine that when christ returns can you imagine what that would be like for you? imagine what that would be like for the, our Eritrean brothers who are right now locked in shipping containers in the heart of an African desert? Or our North Korean brothers who are by the tens of thousands are enslaved in prison camps? When Christ returns, can, can you imagine all the trials stop and all the sin vanishes and all the questions Disappear and all the doubts recede and all the temptations menace you no more and all the suffering ends and all the hatred is gone and, and you and they and I will all wonder, how can this be? And we will turn and we will see the Lamb of God who has taken upon him the sin of the world and you will marvel at him. And I and all will marvel at Christ. He comes to be marveled at. Do you know this hope? Do you know the hope of Christ's return? I say with all the love in my heart, I pity you if you do not know this hope. You are made for Him. He has created you. He has placed you upon this earth. And you are made. Your purpose is found in knowing Him and loving Him and worshiping Him. Will you not give someone an opportunity today to tell you about this hope that is in Christ? Someone perhaps brought you here today. Or I would love to talk to you. You see, Christ has come. Christ has come to give us hope. But He will come a second time to judge and to reward. I think this should be a great comfort to the persecuted. I think this should be a, a great help to those who are suffering. I think it should, should help them to be steadfast. In fact, as we end our time in God's Word, I want you to see that they were steadfast. Look in verse 3. Paul writes this beautiful prayer. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Note this, because your faith is growing abundantly, And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. He commends their faith and their love, which I think is the core Christian response to the Gospel, is it not? Faith towards God, love towards man... And he says, you have faith and you have love. But not only that, you see that their faith, according to Paul, is growing and growing abundantly. And their love for one another is increasing despite their persecutions. And so he rejoices in this. But notice he does not congratulate them for it. But he rather tells them that he gives thanks to God for it. I thank God! Because your faith is growing. I thank God because your love is increasing. Paul understands that their faith and the growth of it, their love and the growth of it, is not simply due to them, but it is due to God's work in them. I mention that because it gives me so much confidence that the work that we have done this week, the prayers that we have offered throughout this week and even today, has had a real and tangible impact upon the persecuted brothers and sisters. Because it is God who does this work. God strengthens. God conjures love in the hearts of those who are suffering. So can we one last time? Can we pray? Can we ask God to do in the afflicted today what He did in the Thessalonians thousands of years ago? That the persecuted Christians, that their love and faith would abound in suffering, knowing that God rules And that God judges and that God rewards. Our Father, we would be remiss today if we did not thank you for the unimaginable freedom in which we have experienced in this country, the thousands of years of freedom, hundreds of years of freedom we have had here in America. We praise you for that. Our concern is that it is slowly being chipped away. But even the progress towards restricting our pursuit of Christ here is nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters face. They are suffering unbelievably. They are asking to bear unbelievable cost. And we call out to you... And say, God, be mindful of the affliction of your children. Cast your eyes down upon this earth, our God, and see the suffering of those who follow Jesus. And strengthen them. Help their faith not to waver. Help them not to turn their back upon Christ. But give them strength. In their faith, help them to remain steadfast. Let their faith grow in the midst of their suffering. Let them, as we've been reminded today, say with Apostle Paul, these light and momentary afflictions are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that is laid up for me. Help their love to grow. Help them not to grow hard and calloused and full of hate, but will you create the love of Christ in them, the love even for their enemies. As they become increasingly aware that even in the midst of their suffering, You are sovereign. You rule. And that You are taking it all into account. And those who refuse Your mercy will face justice. And those who suffer these injustices will be rewarded for it. All this will take place when Christ returns. It is our hope that that day is soon. Come, Lord Jesus. This world is in such a mess. Our only hope is You. Will You not come soon? Will You not come even now, our Lord, that You might redeem all things? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.